Well, friends, the text that we're studying this morning is in the Gospel of Mark. It's in the first chapter of the Gospel of Mark, verses 21 to 28. We're going to read, I'm going to read aloud, verses 21 to 28 of Mark chapter 1. And I would ask you to stand as you're able uh, for the reading of the word. Please stand. <clears throat> when I finished reading, I'm going to say this is the word of the Lord, and we're going to respond together in unison. Thanks be to God. Mark chapter 1, verses 21 to 28. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he, the Lord Jesus, entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out in a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere, throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. This is the word of the Lord. I've, for the sake of the bulletin, I've titled the sermon this morning, Authority, which is not the most creative title I know. And it is what we're going to talk about, though, authority. When I say authority, what I mean is, if we're going to think in terms of the dictionary and definition, authority is the right to give commands and the power to enforce obedience to those commands. The right to give instructions, to tell what needs to happen, and then the power to enforce obedience to those commands. Uh, authority, though it may not be something that we talk about all the time, it is an issue in all of our lives all the time. Um, if you have small children in your household, in some ways your entire day revolves around the issue of authority. Who has the right to tell who what to do? And who has the power to command obedience to what you have told me to do? Uh, it seems like from morning until night that's the, an issue. There's a struggle over authority at our house, and sometimes even the dog is involved in the struggle over authority. But it's not just in our homes, friends. Uh, there are struggles in authority at work, in the workplace. You see them all the time when there's strife in the workplace. Oftentimes it has to do with authority. Who is able to say what to whom and make it happen according to their will? It happens all the time all over our nation. Who has the authority to tell me what to do? Do the police have the authority to pull me over and stop me? and tell me what to do? Does the government have the authority to tell me where I can and can't live and what I can and can't own? Does my government have the authority to tell other governments what they can and can't do and what they can and can't own? 
and how they can and can't behave. This is an issue on every level, from me and the dog to world powers. The issue of authority is in some ways you know, quintessentially the human struggle. Who can say what happens and enforce it? Well, the Bible gives some explanation for why this is the way that it is. In the very beginning, in Genesis chapter 3, our first parents threw off that authority of God over them. Of course, they were not really able to throw off his power, but they sure denied it. They rejected him. And all throughout the Bible, and in all of the Old Testament narrative, all the revelation and the Psalms and the prophets, all through the New Testament, all to the book of Revelation, the issue of authority is a significant one as it pertains to God. Does he have the right to give commands and the power to enforce obedience to his commands? And what does that look like? And how do we respond? The issue of authority is a central one in all of the Gospels. Because as we talked about a few weeks ago, the Lord Jesus Christ comes and says the kingdom has come. The king is here. The authority figure is now on the scene. And repent and believe the gospel is a call to respond to that authority. We've seen it already in the gospel of Mark. Um, it's maybe particularly in the previous section uh, where we considered Jesus calling the first disciples. We didn't talk about it. We just kind of skimmed right over it. But when Jesus walks down the, the beach of the Sea of Galilee and he tells these men who were fishermen, leave your nets and come follow me, and immediately they do. We're witnessing authority. Jesus tells them, this is what you're going to do now. And they do it because he is the Lord. It's definitely in the background so far in Mark 1. It becomes the focus of attention in this text this morning. Jesus speaks in the synagogue. This is really the, the first account of his public ministry in a narrative form. It's been summarized in verses 14 and 15. This is what he preached. But here is Mark's first instance given to us of Jesus actually being somewhere and preaching. And it is, it is a dramatic one. In this first account of his public ministry, Mark puts the emphasis not on what is being said, but on the one who is saying it, the authority of the one who is preaching, and even having this confrontation with this unclean spirit, this demonic spirit. Now, carefully considering Christ's authority as demonstrated in this passage, will help us better understand who he is. And it will help us to recognize that we must all submit to him as our Lord. Friends, for what I want us to do this morning is to carefully consider his authority as it is demonstrated in this passage in order that we might better understand him. And Lord willing, realize that we all must submit to him as our Lord. I have a two-point outline the two points are the extent of his authority and the expression of his authority. The first, the extent of his authority. I want you to notice about this passage that the extent of the Lord Jesus' authority is universal. It is absolute. It is total and complete. Like I said a moment ago, there are many human beings 
claiming various degrees of authority. There are some pretending to be an absolute authority. But here in this text, we see the one who really is an absolute authority and has authority over all. We see it in his teaching to people, and we see it in his interaction uh, with this unclean spirit, this demon. First, we see it in his teaching to people. Mark tells us that he goes on the Sabbath into a synagogue. Now, a synagogue, for those of you that are not aware, the synagogue was, was not the temple. This is not the place where the sacrifices were made. This is not the place where the priests were ministering. This is a, a meeting place. This is an auditorium. This is a room you know, not dissimilar from this one in that regard. You know, our archaeologists have, have unearthed some of the original foundations of this actual synagogue in Capernaum where this happened, and the floor was, was a dark stone. But it was a big room where people met together to, to hear teaching and to sing songs and to pray. Right? Very similar to this one. There was a ruler of the synagogue who features in the gospel narratives, but he was not the pastor of the church, the synagogue. He was more like an administrator slash custodian, a person who managed uh, the property and what was going on there. When they gathered together on the Sabbath for teaching in the synagogue from the Old Testament, from the Torah, it was the people that did it. It was, it was members of the community, and primarily it was the scribes those who were students of the law. They were kind of part, part religious leaders, part lawyers. Uh, they were referred to as the scribes. They show up often. They were experts in uh, the Old Testament. And they were often the, often the ones that were doing the teaching in the synagogue, and especially probably, they're here in Capernaum. Capernaum is in a rural area, but it's not a small town. Uh, probably not all that different from Roanoke in that way, sort of an island of metropolitan urban living in the midst of a sea of rural community. Capernaum had some scribes in it, and the scribes, no doubt, were commonly the ones who taught in the synagogue, uh, but anyone who was an authority of the law in some way uh, would often have the chance to teach in the synagogue. Somebody like the Apostle Paul, you remember in the, in the book of Acts, when Paul, who was an expert in the law, would come someplace, they would ask him to teach. Well, the Lord Jesus here stands up in the synagogue on Sunday to teach, not Sunday, on the Sabbath day, and he is not a scribe remember, likely a carpenter. Not only is he not a scribe, but when he starts to teach, he teaches them in a wholly different way than they were accustomed to. They were astonished by his teaching. The scribes and the teachers of the law, they taught uh, in, in a way that was, was heavily dependent upon quotations from other rabbis, interpretations uh, of the law that were based on tradition oftentimes. Uh, they were giving advice. They were giving suggestion. Rabbi so-and-so says so-and-so. You know, Maybe consider this so-and-so over here. And speaking oftentimes from their, the authority of their own sort of wily, crafty, interpretive methods and their rhetorical skills. You know, much the way that people speak today. Jesus stands up and speaks in a very different fashion. Jesus stands up in the synagogue and starts making declarations. He starts pronouncing, here's how it is. The kingdom has come. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom is at hand. And then he's issuing commands. 
repent and believe the gospel. You see Jesus teaching in more detail in many other passages, the Sermon on the Mount, his his discourses here and there. I mean, the way he spoke, it was arresting in some ways. It is so simple. It is so clear. It is so plain. It is also so forceful. He just tells it how it is. He's not dancing around the issue like we so often do. Uh, I, I thought of this just this last week. Some of you know that my wife and I have been uh, we're in the process of, of adoption right now with some of our children, and so we've been seeing lawyers, and we've been going to court and doing these kind of fun things. Um, and I, I, the other day, we were at the courthouse, and we had a meeting with our lawyer and talked for him for a little while, but then we went and talked to the judge. And the difference between the way the lawyer talked and the way the judge talked uh, made me think about this passage. When we sat down with the lawyer, the lawyer said, well, let, here's what I think is going to happen. Here's what, here's what is likely, here's what the law says, here's what the statutes are, here's what the process is likely going to look like, here's what I think we should do, here's how we should get our ducks in a row, here's our plan and our strategy. Then we go into the courtroom, and the judge sits up there and says, all right, here's what's going to happen. No plan, no strategy, no wondering how things are going to unfold. He's telling us how it's going to unfold, because he's the one who has the authority to unfold it that way. You see what I'm saying? This is how Jesus spoke. Not as, a, not as a lawyer, but as a judge. The one with the authority to decide how it's going to unfold. As one who decides what's going to happen. Not speculating, but announcing. And the people are shocked, you can understand. It was amazing to listen to somebody talk like that. And not, not only somebody, but the carpenter from Nazareth stands up and starts making declarations with authority. They were astonished, for he taught them as one who has authority and not as the scribes. And friends, of course, he did not just speak that way because he was a master of you know, rhetorical device. You know, he, he spoke that way because he is the authority. He spoke that way because he was speaking honestly. The judge in the courtroom this last week that I stood before, he, he was not affecting that kind of decisiveness. He had it. What he said is what's going to happen. And so with the Lord Jesus, he's not affecting this. It's not a style that is so shocking. It's who he is. Because when he stands up and declares the kingdom has come, it has come. When he tells them, repent and believe the gospel, when he says, heaven and earth will pass away, but not one word from the law will pass away, and I have come to fulfill the law. That's the way it is. When he says, broad is the way to destruction, and many are on it, the narrow way leads to eternal life. That is the way it is. When he says, the one who hears my words and does them is like one who builds his house on a rock. And the storm comes and it stands. Friends, that is exactly the way it is because he is the one who is sovereign over the storm. He is the one who is sovereign over life and death. He's going to demonstrate it by rising from the dead. He has authority to speak this way. And he speaks to them and they are stunned by it. Astonished, the scriptures say. I ask this question in passing here. 
Have you heard the Lord Jesus in this way? I mean, we've read his word. Many of you have read the whole Bible. Many of you have heard it read in church. You've heard the words of Christ read, preached. Do you recognize him as the one who has all authority? I mean, in our time, the Lord Jesus is well-respected as a teacher in many circles. He's well-respected as a counselor in many places. He, he is recognized even by other world religions as something of an example and a giver of advice. But the authority, though, the one who declares how it is, and that is how it is, the judge. Have you recognized him that way? I'm afraid that many who claim to be followers of the Lord Jesus in our time are simply agreeers with him. What he said happens to sound good to them, so they're on the same page with him, and they call themselves his followers, but when push comes to shove, when, when he demands something of them that they do not like, well, then suddenly they're not following him at all. They happen to agree with his view of the family, with his view of parenting, with his view of the state, with his view of, of this and that. And so they say, yes, I'm with him. But then when he says something that they don't like, something about sacrifice, something about sexuality, something about the way we live our lives that is painful, does he have authority then? Friends, I think even in the church, even, even in the Reformed church and the conservative parts of the church that we're a part of, far too often, I'm going to paraphrase A.W. Tozer here, we're like British Parliament and we roll the Lord Jesus out like the queen, our figurehead, and we pay homage and then roll him back behind closed doors and make all the decisions ourselves according to our own instincts and intellect and persuasions. Do we recognize him as one who has authority, one who dictates and we submit or not? Do we lean on our own understanding or do we give ourselves to him? Friends, his, his authority is not symbolic. His word is not just advice. It is the truth. Have you acknowledged that? Have you submitted to that reality? Friends, do you live like that? Like there is a master who tells you how you are to live? That's a simple question, but I think in our day and time, Christians, we ought to ask ourselves, do I live like there is a master who tells me how to live? Or do I live really like I have the best of all counselors who I consult as I feel like it? That's worth asking. We see his authority in the way he taught. He speaks as one who has absolute authority. We also see his authority in the way he interacted with the demon, with this unclean spirit, this confrontation. A man with an unclean spirit, that's the way Mark usually refers to evil spiritual powers in his gospel. It is a demon he is referring to. It is an evil spiritual being. We're not going to get into detail about that right now. We will later on as we go through the gospel of Mark. But just taking this at face value here, this is a man who is under the influence of an evil spirit, a fallen angelic being who is here in the synagogue as Jesus is teaching and evidently interrupts his teaching. I think we can assume 
This is while Jesus is teaching this confrontation happens because the crowd responds to the confrontation as well as to the teaching. The crowd is shocked by what's going on when he's teaching, and then the crowd is shocked by this exchange. It is a public exchange that happens here. A man with an unclean spirit cries out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But this, this is just an aside here for you to discuss during lunch. Only one other person is referred to as the Holy One of God in the Scriptures, and that's Samson. Samson, the strong man who went right into the middle of his enemy's house and sacrificed himself to bring it down on their heads. The demon calls him the Holy One of God here, the Lord Jesus. Now, what is this demon doing? What is this unclean spirit doing that he cries out in the middle of this and interrupts? You know, did, did the unclean spirit just so happen to be in the synagogue on the Sabbath to listen to a message? And he was listening intently, and then he was suddenly so moved by the preaching that he cried out? I do not think so. I don't think that's the practice of unclean spirits. I don't think that they're just hanging around to hear what happens to be said from the pulpit. I do believe that this unclean spirit probably had a purpose here, an evil purpose, and on some level, at least, it's likely that of interruption and distraction. The Lord Jesus is preaching, what is he preaching? The gospel, right? The good news of the kingdom. He's calling sinners to repent and be reconciled to him. And this enemy of his in the congregation begins to shout to turn people's attention away from what's being said. We don't know that for a fact, but I think that's a, at least likely, especially because distraction is often the devil's preferred tool. It was from the very beginning, and it is to this day, is it not? To distract us from the task at hand, that our attention, that our, our interest be dissipated and spread out all over everything, and in the end, come to nothing. It is a trial in this time, for the church, it is easy for us to be distracted by the kingdoms of the world, by the political ideologies of our time, rather than the kingdom of God, and to get all worked up about one and forget the other. It is often the case that we get all worked up about our own opinions and our preferences rather than what the scriptures have actually said. We get all worked up about the sins of other people and the way they're behaving rather than my own discipleship before the Lord. And in fact, like the Apostle Peter at the end of the Gospel of John, very distracted by other people entirely. Oh, Lord, what about that one? And we need to hear the rebuke. What is, what is he to you? You follow me. We are a distractible people, and the devil knows this. And friends, I do think that we as a church and I mean we as Grace Church need to be particularly wary of being distracted from the task at hand. Grace Church, I do believe, is enjoying a time of, of real spiritual health in this season of her life. It's been 68 years that Grace Church has been worshiping together. And even though we are in a period of trial and transition, the Lord has blessed us in many, many ways. And I don't think that I'm being suspicious to say that that does not please the devil. And there surely is a desire with our enemy to undo 
the good work that is being done in our midst to distract us, to turn our attention away from Christ and the gospel, to turn our attention away from, from this that matters most, the word of God, Jesus Christ exalted and the church built up in his name in real spiritual life. We'll be distracted by, by everything. The temptation is there. We've got to be focused on what matters the most. The devil has no shame and he is no fool. He knows what he's doing and he knows how to get us distracted. He does prowl about like a roaring lion seeking for someone to devour. And he sure, he sure did know how to distract the crowd this day, I think, in Mark chapter 1. Christ is preaching the good news. The people are amazed at it. And then all of a sudden, there's this guy shouting out in the middle of it. It's hard to listen to a sermon while that's going on. What does Jesus do? He silences the demon and casts it out. He says... Be silent and come out of him. And it does, with a shout. This is astounding. We were talking about, again, we'll get into details with it later, but we're talking about an an, an evil spiritual being, Not, not, not somebody like us. When it comes to human life, we have all kinds of Uh, ability to do this and that. When it comes to to physical and social and behavioral and emotional difficulties, we have all kinds of treatments. We have all kinds of of cures even, ways to handle problems that we have. But not when it comes to spiritual things, not when it comes to an evil spirit. What can be done? What can people do about something like this? But Jesus simply commands it and it immediately obeys. He says, be quiet, be silent, and come out of him. And it does, and clearly against its will. I mean, you see what it does. Crying out with, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice. That was not cooperation. It's cast out of him. Now remember, folks, Jesus is not just a powerful teacher or a masterful spiritual guru. He's the one who made the spirit before it rebelled against him and fell. He made it. Another way to think about it, this is not the first time this demon had encountered the Lord Jesus Christ. Long before Christ came in the flesh, in fact, before the foundations of the earth were laid, We can assume this demon was part of that great angelic host that was present there before Jesus Christ in his pre-incarnate glory. This evil spirit knew exactly who he was dealing with. And here, that same voice that laid the foundations of the earth turns to the spirit and issues a command and it obeys. It must obey. It's the Lord speaking through it. Friends, I think you've got to imagine the scenario to really get the weight of it. I mean, imagine here on Sunday morning, you're sitting in a pew. This shouldn't be hard to imagine. You're sitting in a pew and you're listening to a sermon. Imagine that's happening. And imagine somebody comes in, clearly disturbed, and starts to shout in the fashion of this demon. And then imagine the person standing in the pulpit looks at the person causing the disturbance and says, be quiet 
and you come out of him. And then convulsing with a great shout, something happens. And the person is no longer causing a disturbance. In fact, if we think about other places in the scriptures where the Lord Jesus casts a demon out of someone, probably in their right mind. We can imagine, I think, it doesn't take much uh, creativity to assume that this individual was probably part of that community. He had not flown in on an airplane. And he probably had the effects of being involved with this evil spiritual entity in his life. He was probably a, a troubled member of the community who causes this disturbance. And then the Lord Jesus deals with this spiritual power. What would you think about that if you saw that happen? I mean, if you saw it this morning, somebody comes in, be silent and come out of him, convulsion and shout, and then it's over with. And then the preacher says, as I was saying, point three, you would be astounded. I mean, you would be shocked, wouldn't you? you? You might turn to the people in the pew next to you and say, like they did, what is this? Who is this? What is this one, what is this man not capable of to behave in this way? He commands even the spirits and they obey him. You saw how it obeyed him. Not willingly, but it did as it was told. Friends, that would have been, that would have been shocking. It was shocking when it happened in that synagogue in Capernaum with the dark stone floor. It was shocking. And the one who was standing there, the people were asking, who is this? It was God himself standing there, teaching them with authority to command evil, the evil spirits. And he is capable of absolutely anything. Teaching with authority, commanding spirits, Commanding the wind, commanding the waves, commanding the sun and the moon and the stars. Time and space in his hand. And even the devil himself. As we study this passage together, friends, I think it's helpful for us to remember that. Jesus Christ has authority over absolutely everything. Even the things that would set themselves up against him as his enemy. As Luther said at the end, in some sense, it really is God's devil. God's everything. The Lord Jesus Christ has authority over everything. He's never frustrated. He is never thwarted. The things that are the most intractable obstacles to us, things like disease, things like cancer, difficulty with employment, financial trial, suffering in the midst of our family, division, court dates, the decisions of judges, Difficulties in our marriage, things that seem impossible, they are not impossible with him. I think it's important that we as Christians remember this because the, remembering the sovereign power of our Lord Jesus who commands even the spirits and they obey him, that is a medicine to the soul. Especially in the midst of trial. Brothers and sisters, do not just wring your hands and worry. Pray. Pray to the one who has authority over the wind and the waves and the spirits. 
Pray to the one who has authority over death itself. Pray to him. Don't just be anxious. Don't just work the problem in your mind and try to figure out a solution. Pray. Because he has authority over all. Trust, strive to be trusting him in your trial and need. And cry out to him and do not stop crying out to him. He is the Lord of heaven and earth and everything in it. And the extent of his authority is absolute. That's the first thing I want to point out to you about his authority. It is absolute. The second thing I want to point out is that the exercise of his authority is specific. Though he is the Lord of all, just the same, yet the way the Lord Jesus speaks to this demon and the way he speaks to these people is not the same. Did you notice that? I mean, we know what he said to the demon, right? Be silent and come out of him. And it did. But what did he say to the people? He was preaching to them in the synagogue. Mark doesn't tell us exactly the words that he said, but a few verses earlier, he summarized for us the message that Jesus was preaching. He was preaching the kingdom is, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom is at hand. It's here, repent and believe in the gospel. He was preaching the good news to them, that he, the king, had come, and though they had rebelled against him, they could turn to him and he would receive them. And there would be mercy for them in coming to him. It was a gospel call that he was preaching. It was a call to the people. It was an invitation. It was good news that he was offering to them and offering it in mercy. He was extending an invitation to them and waiting, calling them in his preaching. You see the difference? The way he speaks to the demon and the way he's speaking to the people. He's commanding the demon, be silent and come out of him. But the gospel message is a call to respond to mercy. Now, did the Lord Jesus have the authority to simply command the people in the synagogue that day to bow down before him? Yes, he did. Could he have said to all of them, you be silent, the kingdom has come? No, absolutely he could have. Would they have been silent? They would have. He's the one who's going to speak in the final day, and everything is going to be silent because the Lord is speaking. He could have done it here in the synagogue. Why didn't he? Why is he preaching a sermon to the people and commanding the demon to come out? Well, the reason is that he had come not to enforce his power over men and judge them in this moment, but rather he had come to save them. He had a very specific mission that specifically had to do with human beings made in his image that he was coming to do. In John chapter 3, right after that well-known verse, John 3.16, he says he's not come to condemn the world, but to save it. In John 12, he reiterates the same thing. He's not come to judge the world, but to save it. He had come at this point to accomplish something very specific. And that was the salvation of sinners who had rebelled against him. This is why the Lord Jesus was there in the synagogue at all, in in humble human flesh. Why he was teaching village to village and calling men and women to repent and to believe. Why he was patiently demonstrating for them his power. They say, show us a a sign, and he has showed them signs. He doesn't have to show them signs. He doesn't have to persuade them of anything, but he does. He preaches, he pleads, he weeps, he prays. He goes village to village, and when he is exhausted and they come knocking on his doors, we're going to see in the next passage, he stays up all night to heal them. Why? 
Why, after all this preaching and these signs and wonders, why does he go to the cross as a real man who could die and would die? Well, you know why. He goes to make atonement for our sin. He preaches the gospel of salvation to a rebellious people, and he goes and accomplishes their salvation with his own blood poured out. He becomes like them in order to save them, as Hebrews chapter 2 Verse 17 puts it, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. That's why he's come. Not to judge the world, not at this point, but to make propitiation for the sins of his people. Of his people, not the demons. The previous verse in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 16 says, for surely it is not angels that he helps but he helps the offspring of Abraham. He'd not come to preach to demons. He'd not come to save demons. He had utter authority over evil spirits. He had utter authority over human beings. But his purpose was very different. He'd come to save sinners in mercy. That's why he speaks this way. That's why he exercises his authority so specifically. This evil spirit had rebelled against God. That's the way Jude describes them in verse 6 of his letters, those that did not stay under their authority but rebelled against him. Same with our first parents. They rebelled against him. We rebelled against him. All of us alike in that regard. But we are not alike in that the Lord God has made us in his image and he has set his love upon us and extends his mercy to us to save us. As weak and as unworthy as we are, and friends, we are weak and unworthy. In terms of power, this unclean spirit was surely more impressive than the people sitting in the synagogue. But the unclean spirit was not the object of God's merciful, redeeming affection. The people were. This accounts for the difference. Christ does not have to plead with people, but he does. He chooses to in mercy so that we might respond. We might respond as friends and not simply be forced to bow as conquered slaves. Think, think about that, friends. Think about his heart towards us. The God of heaven is speaking to a group of people with flesh and blood and breath in their nostrils like you and me who do not understand what's going on. He's speaking with them and he's pleading with them to turn to him and promising that he'll show them mercy. A powerful spiritual being cries out in the midst of it. He turns to the spiritual being and says, you, quiet. Turns back to the people and says, now, listen to what I'm saying. Do you see? I mean, do you see the heart of Christ towards the people there? You see his authority flash for an instant when he speaks to the spirit and casts it out. And then he turns to these weak, finite people. And he continues to preach good news to them and plead with them, will you respond to me? Will you respond to me? It's a fantastic thing that we see here in Mark chapter 1. It is the heart of the Lord Jesus that we see. He has authority to command and power to enforce. He is not weak, but he is tenderhearted towards sinners, and he is patient. Do you know that about him? Do you believe that about him? Friends, will you listen to him? 
I'll close by saying this. Do not mistake his patience for weakness. The fact that he went town to town and pleaded with people and preached the gospel. The fact that Sunday after Sunday in here, there's somebody standing up and pleading with you. Respond, respond. And God in his patience lets the sun keep going, lets the earth keep going around the sun. Don't mistake that patience for weakness as if you were sitting in a place of authority over him. It is patience. It is mercy. And oh, friends, one day the same Lord Jesus will come and he will command all of humanity with his authority. And everyone is going to do exactly as they're told on that day. Maybe with a convulsion and a shout, but it will be done. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. He has the power, the authority to command it, and he does. He will. But that final day is not yet. Not today. Today he invites. Today he calls sinners in mercy. Will you come to me? The time is passing. The clock is moving. There are only a certain number of Sabbath days left. I am going to come in power, and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. But today, you may turn to me and receive mercy. Will you come? You see it on his lips here. You see it in his life. You see it in the scriptures, friends. We will all respond to his authority at some point. There is no avoiding it, only delaying it. How have you responded to him? You've heard the gospel. How have you responded to this one who claims authority over all and demonstrates it? How will you respond? The right response is to bow down before him and worship. The right response is to say, you are the Lord. Oh, save me, Christ. I will repent. I will turn and believe in the good news. Have mercy on me. The right response is to say, all hail the power of Jesus' name. So let's pray now, and then we'll sing together. And I commend you, friends. Hail the power of Jesus' name as we sing. He is the Lord. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for sending the Lord Jesus, and we thank you for giving us this word that we might know him. Oh, may we know him. May we know him as he truly is, our Lord, and may we worship him. Help us, we ask. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen.